We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Kristen Cobus Dumay, author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, and professor at Calvin University, joins Jim Lyon to talk history, her book, and what the Bible calls all believers to do and to be. I am so very, very thankful to welcome to our All That to Say table one of the most engaging authors of our time. And I'm not saying that just with hyperbole. Uh, she has written a book, which I'm calling the buzz book of the moment. This is a book that is ascending the charts uh, because it asks very important and provocative questions. And as we get into this author's story and her lens and her writing, I'm just so excited uh, for all of us here in the studio and also who join us in our audience listening to this podcast to just wrestle with some really important ideas. Her name is Kristen Dumay. Kristen, thanks so much for coming to join us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I just have to say, with a name like Kristen Dumay, there's more. There's Kristen Cobus. Demay, yes. your middle name, K-O-B-E-S. Yes. And these names actually have meaning. Names matter. That's what I think. I, I thought pretty carefully about my children's names, and mm-hmm. we think about that when we marry and so on and so forth. Give me just a little snapshot of Kristen Cobus Dumay as seen through her names. Ooh. What do those names mean? What are the Ooh. roots? Okay, so Kristen, follower of Christ. Uh, my parents uh, put a lot of thought into that. That was very intentional. Cobus is a Dutch name, and it's a very small family a name. We don't exactly know, but we think it's connected to Jacobus or Jacob. Mm-hmm. And Dumay is a French name, but really Huguenot, so also essentially Dutch. And my husband likes to claim that Dumay is of the city of Metz, which suggests that we're some kind of aristocracy long, <laughs> long ago. And so I let him think that. Well, it's an elegant name, and it speaks, though, to some um, heritage in your family, both you and your husband, yes. that reach back into uh, Northern Europe and uh, the yeah. Dutch culture and so on. Yeah, my mom actually immigrated from the Netherlands, so, oh, so it's she's, not that far back for us. There you are. There you are. Well, I I just have to say I'm an adopted person, and I was adopted uh, from Irish parents, Irish nationals, and I used to think growing up that I, I surely was adopted from an aristocratic family. <laughs> and I used to look at Prince Charles on the television, and I would study his nose, and I'd look at that profile, and i think, oh, oh maybe, maybe... I'm, you know, the bastard child of the <laughs> English royal family. And when I was growing up, I, that was preposterous. But now I know it's possible. <laughs> but anyway, we all have a login, don't we? To associate with something that has status. Oh, yes. which kind of brings me to your book. <laughs> this is it. Jesus and John Wayne. And the subtitle is the thing that raises eyebrows even more than the boldface. How white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. I mean, it just seems like the third rail of publishing today. And I'm really looking forward, Kristen, to uh, unpacking some of these ideas with you. But before we get there, you wrote this book as an historian. Mm-hmm. And tell me about that. Has becoming an historian as a calling, as a vocation, where did that come from? Is that something you grew up thinking, I love history and someday I'm going to do this? Or it came later in life. What would you say? 
No, it was it was part of the growing up process, I guess. I think it really um, goes back to high school for me. I mean, I, I always loved history. I loved learning about other cultures. I'd grown up in a small town in Iowa, and so the world was out there, and I felt like I had to read books to <laughs> to learn about it. Sure. And uh, and so I, I always wanted to um, to get away, and I didn't really have the resources to do so. My family moved to Florida for a couple of years uh, when I was in high school, and that introduced me to a whole different kind of uh, cultural context. Right, the American South, my little religious denomination. I, I grew up Christian Reformed, still am. Uh, didn't really translate <laughs> into uh, that context at all. Nobody had ever heard of it. Um, and then my senior year in high school, I became an exchange student in Germany. Oh, whereabouts where in Germany? I, I, I lived in Ostfriesland, mm-hmm. um, just, just off the North Sea. And uh, that, I think, was really a transformative year because by immersing myself in a different culture, different language, different family, I um, came to see my own culture, religion, upbringing in, uh, from a distance, mm-hmm. right? And it made me so curious about why are Americans this way? You know, uh, nationalism in particular was uh, a flashpoint. You know, Germans would look at us and say, why do you always wave the flag? Don't you know that's dangerous? And uh, uh, so I I really came back to the United States into college with a lot of questions and curiosity about understanding my own tradition, understanding my own faith tradition, and understanding uh, my my country. Uh, So I think that that really sent me into um, historical investigation. And I, I just kept up with it. History is great because everything has a history. So it never really gets dull, right? You can you can explore mm-hmm, one thing and then you can pick up another project for your next book. And um, really everything is fair game. Well, and when we say historian and we talk about history, it is so broad. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's history of the United States. There's the history of the United States in the 20th century. There's the history of the United States in the last quarter century. There's the history of the English-speaking world. There's the history of Western civilization. There's, I mean, there's so many dimensions to history. Did you focus, did you narrow your lens to a particular dimension of history? Well, when I went to graduate school, I wanted to study U.S. religious and intellectual history um, because I understood that to be the the history that really mattered most, right? Religious and intellectual history. That I think that reflects kind of my own upbringing, my own um, formation. And um, when I got to graduate school that first semester, I had a professor introduce me to the study of gender in history. Uh, and we read a book in women's history, and it absolutely blew my mind. And immediately that week, I changed my focus from religious and intellectual history to a study of religion and gender. I had no idea how ideas of masculinity and femininity changed over time, how they were linked to broader economic shifts, and they were linked not just to religion, but to things like foreign policy. And and I realized this is the history that really matters. Um, and I I um, I really haven't looked back. That's that's what I've been exploring ever since. And um, but as a historian of American history, American religion, uh, I, I, I always bring that lens of gender and, and how, can we, how can we understand people's faith lives? How can we understand people's identities in terms of the intersection of religion and gender? That's so extraordinary. And as you're describing that, I remember uh, in Seattle, which was my original home place where I married and our, our sons were born, uh, we took in a Japanese exchange student. Uh, frankly, I had an extra bedroom and I was trying to feed 
my family and my wife was working at Nordstrom's and we were all trying to give all the airs, you know, the balls in the air. Mm -hmm. And uh, this company came along and said, you know, we have students who want to come to the University of Washington from abroad. And mm -hmm. if you'll uh, have one in your home, we'll pay you $400 a month, which at the time was like, oh, the, that's my house payment for two months. So in any case, we had a young man come from Japan and stay in our house. His name was Ken. Ken was a great experience for us. Uh, in the way you described going to Germany, he was coming to the States. He was a freshman at the University of Washington. But I inquired uh, why he chose our house. And his mother was a member of the Tokyo City Council. So these were prominent people. And his father owned or was the chief executive of a large tire and rubber corporation in Japan. His parents said, if you live in the house of a pastor you'll have the keys to understanding American civilization mm. because from their view, American culture was formed and, and their purpose in sending him was to understand American culture so he could go back home and prosper in business and sell things <laughs> back to us. But I, I was so struck by yeah. their lens was, mm -hmm. man, if you live with a pastor, you'll, you'll be able to understand the states. And you've a little bit uh, referenced that in your own pursuit of history, that what really has been a driver in American history, perhaps as much or more than some other nations, has been this concept of faith and its intersection mm -hmm. with culture and and government and politics. Yes. And uh, and then, of course, the gender piece, as you described, also very much now in the forefront. And uh, here you are. Yes. So you graduate, you get a graduate degree in history. Mm -hmm. And what happens with that? You're, you're looking for a... A post, a mm -hmm. position where mm -hmm. that can be nourished and ongoing, but also where you can have a, a wage, I suppose. Yes. How does that land? Tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So as I was finishing my dissertation, I spent a couple of years out in upstate New York. I, I was at Williams College uh, for a semester, and I, I taught a course in American uh, religion there and women, women in American religion, which was a really interesting space to be in. Most students were secular and uh, most of their their kind of coursework was quite secular. And so to bring in uh, the history of, of women in religion and to, I actually focused on conservative evangelicalism and had a couple of evangelical students take the course, which was wonderful because they had never really seen themselves in that space and been able to analyze their own tradition. Uh, I was also at the Five College Women's Studies Research Center at Mount Holyoke for a time and uh, really kind of immersed myself in, um, in the broader world of gender studies. And then when it came time to apply for jobs, uh, there were um, at that time a few jobs open, all liberal arts colleges in the Midwest. And uh, Calvin University was one of them. It was a college back then. I really didn't think I wanted to um, teach there. I thought my kind of mission would be to be a Christian scholar in a, a secular space, um, much like what I had done at, at Williams College, and, and to bring that understanding into the classroom. Uh, and then after interviewing at, at um, several different schools, I absolutely fell in love with Calvin. I fell in love with the faculty there, with the mission, and I realized what a privilege it would be to be kind of active as a Christian, as a Christian scholar, in my scholarship, in my classroom, and, um, and to do so kind of at the highest level of rigorous academic work. And that's that was 16 years ago, I think now, and it has been a wonderful, wonderful space, colleagues, students, um, to do this kind of work. And so 16 years feels like home. Yeah. And Calvin University uh, is affiliated with your faith tradition, mm -hmm. a Christian Reformed Church. Yes. Tell us a little bit about 
growing up in the Christian Reformed world, your father was a pastor, as I understand it. Yes, he's he is ordained, and uh, he but he's never been a full time pastor. He uh, has he was a theology professor, just retired a couple of years ago, but still actively preaches and teaches every once in a while. He's still very active, well, but very deeply engaged in church life. Very much so. Yes. So you know, growing up, uh, I got a good dose of of theology, and you know, we suffer, uh, celebrated Reformation Day, not Halloween, in in our home, <laughs> and we talked about Abraham Kuyper on occasion, and you know, this Dutch uh, Reformed tradition. So uh, yeah, that was uh, that was my um, perhaps rather distinctive upbringing. The Christian Reformed Church is uh, a Dutch immigrant kind of ethnic community, and uh, it, it in some ways has been apart from broader American evangelicalism. Certainly, when I grew up, I didn't identify as an evangelical. I identified very clearly as Christian Reformed and as Dutch, and we we kind of identified at least I did, over against American Christianity, American evangelicalism. We were different. We were distinctive. We thought we were a little bit smarter, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and at the same time, looking back, I can see how I was also immersed in the world of American evangelicalism, right? There was one, one bookstore in my small town, and it was a Christian bookstore. I only listened to Christian radio, Christian music, because that's what I thought you're supposed to do as a Christian, right? And so culturally, I was in fact shaped by this broader American evangelicalism, even as I I really identified as as this rather with this, this rather distinctive tradition. And so I think that uh, when people ask now, are you an evangelical? It's it all depends on how you define the term because um, one foot in, one foot out. Yes, familiar with it, but also always my identity was was somewhat distinct from mainstream American evangelicalism. But the Christian reform church would be considered orthodox. That's a term I'm using to describe, traditionally framed in its yeah. grasp of Scripture, its reverence for the revealed Word, yes. uh, its fidelity to Jesus as Lord, I mean, yes. the, a kind of uh, skeleton that Christians share. And especially in the evangelical world, uh, someone who grew up in the Christian Reformed Church would not be a stranger no. to the to the uh, biblical exegesis and uh, lifestyle of yeah. what we more traditionally call evangelicals, right? So it's uh, you know it's a confessional tradition um, takes the scriptures extremely seriously uh, and holds the scriptures together with a strong intellectual tradition, right? Studying theology um, and again that that very much shaped me and my my approach to to faith has always been through my intellect, uh, and that's I think consistent with um, with the strand of of the Christian Reformed tradition in my own family, um, and no, I think uh, it would. I would identify you know, having grown up as a conservative Christian, um, and within the Christian Reformed Church too, there are kind of different different strands. And so there's more of a Pietist strand, and then there's more of a um, uh, to use what has now become rather charged language, a social justice tradition, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. and, and both of those have been held in tension within the Christian Reformed Church for more than a century, right? And so, so you've always had this. So we we kind of. Um, are are maybe more comfortable with that tension, and um, and you can find both. So you can find conservatism, you can find progressivism within the Christian Reformed denomination, and ideally we can um, you know go to the scriptures to have conversations across across those differences. And am I on point saying that this is a church family? Mm -hmm. You still treasure and consider yourself to be a part of this Christian Reformed family that has poured into you. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a member of a Christian Reformed Church right down the road, which I absolutely love. Powerful preaching and um, gorgeous liturgies. And it's actually, we have a basic English service. And so it's filled with uh, uh, Christians from around the world, immigrants, refugees. And so it's a very diverse community. And it's one that sustains me every week. When you say a basic English service, I mean, that that's a new phraseology, but yeah. I think I'm I'm getting the message. It's actually a service in the English language, yes. which has been kind of the vocabulary is reduced yeah. to make it accessible for people who find English as a second language. Is that the idea? Yes. So we have different services and my family goes back and forth between the standard English and the basic English. And so it's um, it's it's a it's a fun space to be in. No Dutch language services today. Now that you say it, no. We do have a number of Dutch speakers still That's who nice. are members of the, the church. And so sometimes a prayer might be offered in Dutch, and, uh, but more, more likely Swahili. <laughs> well, there you go. That's a global uh, family. Kristen, as you've uh, been talking about your own journey and history and your profession, uh, it leads me to your book. And, and the book is fascinating. There are some big ideas in this book there, that are I'm going to capture in a couple words and ask you to define them before we actually dive into the content. Sure. So you talk about Christian nationalism uh, as a as a type, as a, as a trajectory, as a, a body of thought. Uh, you also speak a lot about patriarchy uh, as uh, a defining structure or way of looking at the world. And then there's a lot in this book about masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to admit that as I read the book, I I. I expected to be confronted, if that's the term, challenged by the Christian nationalism dynamics uh, more overtly. But actually, as I read through the book, it seems to me that patriarchy and definitions of masculinity are more foundational to your analysis. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll let you respond to that later. But for right now, can you just help the audience understand what do you mean when you say Christian nationalism? What do you mean when you say patriarchy? Mm -hmm. What do you think about the definition of masculinity? Sure. So Christian nationalism, very simply, is uh, this belief that um, uh, America was uh, founded as a distinctively Christian nation, and that is how it ought to be maintained and preserved and defended. So America is a Christian nation, and it needs to be defended as such. Um, what that often entails then is the conflation of faith and nation. So what is good for Christianity is good for America. What is good for America is good for the faith. And as I tease it out in this book, we can see how um, that produces a kind of militancy. Um, So if there's a military threat to the nation, then that needs to be defended against um, using aggressive tactics. Um, And then that is applied also to the faith. So militant defense of the faith. So that's kind of a, the trajectory that I trace in terms of this conflation of, of faith and nation. And, and let me intervene here. So mm-hmm. uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and, mm-hmm. you know, and so on. I mean, this that's almost become like scripture mm-hmm. for many people in the country. In fact, some people wouldn't know the scriptures, would know that phraseology, but it's seen as almost uh, divine writ. Yes. And, and, and that uh, reference point as an American uh, being favored or chosen, manifest destiny, yeah. uh, the concept that the continent is ours to take mm-hmm. if we're of European descent. Yes. Uh, you know, all of those things, that's what you're describing as the sense of exceptionalism. Yeah. 
differentiated from other nations of the world that might have proud and legitimate histories of their own, but not like this one. Exactly, exactly. So uh, America is God's chosen nation, God's special people, just like Israel. So America and Israel. And um, and you're right, uh, so pushing back against Christian nationalism, which is something I do in this book, is not pushing back against the the reality that there were Christians in, in, in that were part of America's founding. Or who hugely informed the exactly. world we have. Yes. I, exactly, that, that Christians have played this prominent role. But it really is, is setting aside one nation, our nation, as special, as chosen, as God's nation. And uh, what what ends up happening then is, uh, by default, what America does, because we've already decided that God is on our side, what we do then is righteous. And, and as you suggest, manifest destiny or, you know, the assertion of American power, American military might, the wars that we fight are by definition then often considered righteous. And so rather than aligning ourselves with God, we end up um, bringing God into our our own battles and and kind of sanctifying whatever actions we choose, and that's where things can get um, can get dangerous and and really start to uh, to corrupt uh, the faith and and how we how we understand what um, what God is is you know perhaps calling us to do and to be. Well, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking my father walked out of his high school in a jungle of Florida between St. Augustine and Jacksonville back in the 1940s and enlisted in the United States Navy so mm-hmm. that he could go to war against the Axis powers yes. in the World War II, famously the, the kind of crystallization of good versus evil. Yes. And of course, American history is littered with wars. The Mexican War of the 1840s is probably quite a different animal mm-hmm. than World War II, uh, our engagement there, or the Civil War. I mean, there War is a, a big term, covers mm-hmm. a lot of bases. And what I'm trying to acknowledge, I guess, is some uh, who would embrace a just war theory might find justification for we've got to stop Hitler mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the imperial Japanese empire differentiated from everything we do is is blessed. Exactly. Exactly. So there's there's space to say, you know, we need to fight this war, perhaps. Um, you know, you have just war theory. You have a whole whole range of perspectives then that can be brought into it, which is quite different from you know whatever wars we choose. If, God is on our side. If the Star Spangled Banner is there, then exactly case closed. Exactly. And then by definition, everything that our um, you know our soldiers do in any context is also justified, and and you can kind of go down that road and, and see how that can lead to some um, some real problems. And make it very difficult to acknowledge a mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So there's Christian nationalism as you understand it. Okay. Patriarchy. Uh, So patriarchy is essentially uh, uh, men um, taking power over women and uh, maintaining that power, exerting that power. And um, so it's patriarch is a term that uh, can look different in different times. I mean, there's consistency, but as a historian, I'm much m- uh, more interested in the particulars. So in any given uh, situation uh, with both patriarchy and we'll get to masculinity soon, you know, I'm looking at how does it manifest in this moment? Uh, so patriarchy can, can mean a number of different things. It can mean um, in a religious context, uh, it can mean uh, religious, you know, masculine leadership. 
uh, in church. It can also be transferred into masculine leadership in society, in the home. Um, but it really is um, the the assertion of power, defining power as as masculine, and then restricting that to um, to men and um, and uh, you know keeping it from women. So it's it's essentially just a male male rule, male power. Well, and it sounds like a starting place, a world that's defined with this yeah. first proposition, yeah. men are in charge. Exactly. And then everything else falls out from that. Right. And it can, again, it can manifest in different ways. It can look different ways in different cultures and different settings, but it's just, it's it's really, you know, shorthand uh, term to talk about, about, yes, male power. And this patriarchy is not unique to American history. I mean, that's, that's a global phenomenon, a historic absolutely. phenomenon. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can find you, you can find patriarchy throughout world history, obviously. Uh, so again, as a, as a historian, what I'm interested in, in this time and place, what does that look like? How does it change over time? How does it connect to things like war, to things like foreign policy, to things like sexuality, uh, you know, sex advice manuals for husbands and wives, <laughs> yeah. things like How that. How does that play out? Exactly. And and your historic perspective is also how that has informed our own national history. Yes. Right? I mean, because this is where it intersects with your analysis. Yes. Uh, that, that a patriarchal view, even though I might imagine growing up in this world, that this American world, that, oh, oh no, it's much more egalitarian than that. In fact, if I, if I step back and mm-hmm. say, wait a minute, uh, not so much. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's the case that you're unpacking for us in the book. Yeah, yeah, and it can be easier for people who are excluded from certain um, you know, communities or excluded from um, uh, power to see that exclusion, right, and to see how that operates. So I think it's it's um, often easier for women to see identify sure, patriarchy sure, sure. to see oh there are some limits here there yeah, are some yes. boundaries and and I am not allowed in those spaces. Whereas for men who can move more freely about because of patriarchy, it, you have to work a little harder to see that it's That's there. Right. And sometimes you have to listen and trust other people who are telling you that it's there. Of course. And there are assumptions made that aren't challenged yeah. that this is just the way things are. Exactly. And, and you don't even think about it. And yes. Yes. As that white guy, I sometimes say, you know, as a white American male, mm-hmm. I probably have been born into the most privileged class the world has ever known. But I don't think of that often until I'm in a circumstance where the privilege is so obvious I can't deny it. Yeah. Showing up with an American passport in another country uh, where I'm pushed to the front of the line just because I have an American passport. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then I'm white because my African-American colleague has an American passport, but he didn't get pushed to the line. And and I'm male. And I mean, mm-hmm. so all those things mm-hmm. converge. But as a white American male, I have not always recognize that. Exactly. And that's that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And 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 right, the privilege, right, of of being able to move freely without being aware of your identity. Uh, whereas, you know, for people who are left at the back of the line or for people who are, uh, you know, not allowed in this position, not hired for for this position, not um uh you know not allowed to preach, not um not allowed to um to have authority, uh, right? That's um, it's it's often just right in front of people when those doors are closed. I I, I talked to you earlier uh, before we came to the table today, uh, Kristen, to say that I, I'm your father. I mean, my generational uh, expanse is uh, twice yours, I think. But I remember there was a crisis in the South Atlantic called the Falkland Island Crisis, and in this crisis, Great Britain had a had an outpost on these Falkland Islands, the Argent. Tinians wanted to claim it back as their mm-hmm. own. There was a, a battle. 
the prime minister at the time was Margaret Thatcher uh, in Britain, and she she was very definitive. We're going to send the the Royal Navy down there and make sure if it takes six weeks for the boats to get there, which is what it did, <laughs> we're going to make sure those islands stay mm-hmm. under the Union Jack. And so in all that drama, I'll never forget the Times of London ran an editorial that said, Margaret Thatcher is the only real man in the yes. British cabinet. <laughs> what what it, it's, it spoke about Margaret Thatcher's command mm-hmm. of her place and persona, but it also, she could only be applauded because she demonstrated what was considered to be a masculine province. Exactly. And and that illustrates so much. Exactly, because masculinity and power are historically always intertwined, right? So I guess that brings us to our third point, which is masculinity. So what is masculinity? This too, it's a pretty simple definition. It's whatever people think goes along with being a man. Right? Whatever in any given moment, people say, this is what it is to be a man. You're doing this because you're a man. And so this too is a category that changes over time. You know, what does it mean to be a man in this culture, in this time period? Uh, masculinity is however people answer that question, essentially. So again, as a historian, I'm not interested in defining terms that stand for all time. Uh, I'm interested in looking at how people define those terms in any given moment. Um, so does um, being a man, uh, does that look like exhibiting self-restraint and, and really being able to hold back your aggression? Or does being a man look like acting on that aggression? And does it look like wielding power, right? Does it look like violence? Does it look like uh, radical peacemaking? Does it look like anger? Does it look like gentleness? Uh, and how that is defined really does vary across cultures. Uh, it's uh, it, it looks different in different racial communities. It looks different in different religious communities. And there's rarely kind of one model of masculinity that goes unchallenged, right? There are many different answers to what does it mean to be a man. Um, depending on on where you're getting your information from, what you what you're watching uh, on television, your favorite show, w- your dad, what example he provided to you. You know, when I ask my students in the classroom about what shaped your vision of masculinity, a lot of them talk about their dads. Mm-hmm. And then they they describe them and their dads are very different one from the other, right? right so there's right, many, right, right. many models yep. of what this might look like. But then there are also some popular cultural models. And then um, religiously, too. Uh, this is often a question that is brought to religious communities. You know, what does it mean to be a man? And then what does it mean to be, uh, you know, what, what does biblical manhood look like? Uh, what does Christian masculinity look like? And that's where we see this intersection of religion and gender. And when it's framed um, from a religious source, it's no longer just one option among many. It become it, it's presented as this is the God ordained one way to be a man. And so that's really what I what I end up tracing, how that conversation has taken place and how it's changed over time within American evangelicalism and white evangelicalism in particular. I mean, uh, this kind of typology or, or metaphor or stereotyping actually is, is part of the narrative. And, and so that brings us straight up to where your book is. And and you've used two famous names, Jesus and John Wayne. They seem like, in a you know, at first blush for me, uh, a bit of a unlikely pair. That's good. Uh, but that also reflects a little bit of my own upbringing. Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness, I grew up in a world where my dad loved westerns, so Clint Eastwood would 
maybe be the more mm-hmm. apropos thing, but I, I grew up in a world where that was uh, was kind of a a picture of of the good guy, mm-hmm. and and yet. Uh, John Wayne is a towering figure. I mean, there's the John Wayne Airport uh, in Southern California. Uh, in Washington State, my home place, there's a railroad track that's been up, you know, picked up, and it's become this, you know, hundreds of miles of of wilderness track mm-hmm. that is fantastic. You go through the Cascade Mountains and from west to eastern Washington and so on. But it's the John Wayne Trail. I uh, hadn't heard of that. Yes. Add I, well, it to I my mean, list. Obviously, John Wayne has, has mm-hmm. had a towering uh, impact uh, as— a, a guy who was born of Irish parents but adopted in the States, as an adult man, I became acquainted with my Irish family to whom I've become very close. But uh, as I was trying to relate to them, because I was raised in the States there in Ireland, the only thing I knew about Ireland was a movie called The Quiet Man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I made a very clumsy introduction <laughs> to my father by birth saying, well, I, I saw The Quiet Man. <laughs> Yeah. You know, did, did you grow up in that thatched cottage, <laughs> which is famously John Wayne, mm-hmm. 1950s classic with Maureen O'Hara. Uh, but in, in every role that John Wayne played, there's a certain persona. Mm-hmm. He's he's obviously the guy in command. Yes. Even if he may be clumsy with Maureen O'Hara in The Quiet Man, where this woman he loves is is standing up to him, it's still within the context of his ultimate authority. Yes. And, and so how did you pull these two together? Jesus is an historic figure. And we might say, well, we, we got Jesus. We know Jesus. And you've already uh, explained that you grew up in a world where Jesus was Lord, and mm-hmm. that's still true for you. Okay, so Jesus is that. John Wayne, we know too, but how do the two intersect? What do you think? So let me first make clear, I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. <laughs> I'm as surprised as you are. So that's how it ended up. Uh, I came to this really when I was first introduced to the the literature on Christian masculinity. And this was a long time ago. This is right after I came to Calvin. So more than 15 years ago, and it was my students who brought this to my attention. I just lectured in a U.S. history course on Teddy Roosevelt because I wanted to show them exactly what I had learned that had just opened up my eyes to how gender work in history, how how concepts like masculinity change over time and how they're linked to economic shifts and to foreign policy. And Teddy Roosevelt is the perfect example for this, right? The rough rider, he recreates himself out in the American West and, and just a perfect example. And after that class period, a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there is this book that you have to read. And it was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And um, so I took their advice. I went down to Family Christian Bookstore, bought a copy, and opened it up. And sure enough, um, opens with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And then Eldridge goes on to sketch this very militant, militaristic conception of Christian masculinity. Um, God is a warrior God, and men are made in His image. Every man has a battle to fight. Um, and and so I read it with great interest, and I, I noticed right off the bat that, you know, for all their talk of being Bible-believing Christians, uh, this, this whole literature, it wasn't just Eldridge by this point, it was a, a dozens of books, were really drawing less on the Scriptures and less carefully on the Scriptures and more on Hollywood heroes and mythical uh, masculine heroes. So um, Mel Gibson's William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. 
huge role in this respect. I mean, very defining for a lot of guys my age I know. Absolutely. Just permeated evangelical culture in terms of what does it mean to be a man? If I could have found a way to fit Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart in the title of a book, that probably (laughs) I tried. Um, But John Wayne was another one of these that kept popping up, right? These Hollywood heroes, not evangelicals, not known for their their Christian values. In their personal lives, they, they weren't modeling that. Not at all. And um, but but they were these these heroic figures, men who could uh, do what needed to be done, men who would w- use violence as necessary to protect faith, family, and nation, and um, and that these were the men who were then taken into uh, evangelicalism, really held up as ideals as ideals of Christian masculinity. And what I saw is this this ended up shaping not just evangelical cultural ideals and not just evangelical political allegiances, although it definitely played a role in both. It also ended up shaping evangelical theology itself. It ended up changing how they understood the gospel, how they understood Jesus Christ. Because what we see happening is rather than the the biblical example of Jesus, Jesus in the Gospels, shaping, actively shaping visions of what it is to be a Christian man, we see this kind of secular model of heroic warrior masculinity end up shaping conceptions of who Jesus was so that Jesus Christ becomes a warrior um, with tattoos down his leg, wielding a bloody sword, charging into battle to slay his enemies. And that is the Jesus that evangelicals are called to follow. And so that's really the story that I tell in this book, how that came to be. I trace it back historically, um, going back to really the uh, early Cold War era when this this comes together, this vision of rugged, aggressive masculinity linked to Christian nationalism, again, to defend the country. Um, It's it's linked to, um, it's always a very white masculine ideal. And so it's in that context that evangelicals embrace this vision of masculinity that then really moves to the center of their of, of their understanding of Christianity itself. And then I, I, I trace the implications of that all the way up to the present. As you're talking, I'm, my mind is being flooded with what I would call iconic film characters. Yes. And uh, when I was a younger guy, uh, I, I just remember going to the Northgate Theater in Seattle and there, and I was taking... Uh, it doesn't matter. I, I had a, a young... I was a big brother. I had this... <laughs> a fifth grade boy in tow that I was being the big brother to, if you're familiar with that organization. Anyway, we were going to see Star Wars, but uh, in the theater lobby was this huge, larger-than-life poster of the first Indiana Jones movie. And there was uh, Harrison Ford in his Indiana Jones garb standing up there. And I I can tell you, I I stopped in my tracks and looked up at that Mm -hmm. and thought, man... That guy has got it together. <laughs> yeah. And I actually went out and bought a pair of cargo pants. I mean, <laughs> he popularized what we now take for granted, you know, pants with big pox down, which I would have never worn before. <laughs> I'm just saying. I never made that connection before. The, the power, yeah. the power of those images. Yeah. But then how that that was merged into my own sense of self. Mm-hmm. Now, give me some other for in the lexicon, Indiana Jones is probably for me. Okay, just because I'm I'm going to defend Indiana Jones, the <laughs> least objectionable of the crowd, though he's got some uh, crazy uh, 
outcomes. Yeah, my archaeologist colleagues would disagree with with that. <laughs> well, well, I mean, there's a lot of things about the Indiana Jones uh, motif that's yes, off yes. base, but in terms of just as a person, as who's, a person. who's trying to help out and get to the the, the right outcome. Yeah, yeah. But give us some other uh, names or characters. I mean, just call them out so that we can kind of just think, oh yeah, that that has been hugely informative to mm-hmm. who I am. Well, you know, I uh, to go back to John Wayne and, and unpack just a little bit about, you know, who he was and who he came to be and what he came to stand for in terms of American culture, how he became an icon of American masculinity, um, particularly conservative white American masculinity. Uh, you know, think about he was the hero in the Wild West. Uh, he, he first rose to fame as this cowboy hero, right? Mm-hmm. And then he starred in Sands of Iwo Jima. And here we see him kind of taking this cowboy heroism into the good war, right? World War II. And um, and, and then he ends up you know, starring and, and directing The Alamo. And here, too, this kind of vintage white American hero defending against, uh, in this case, Mexicans. Now, in Sands of Iwo Jima, it was against um, Japanese. And in the, the Westerns, it was against Native Americans. And you can start to see mm-hmm. a pattern sure, here. Sure. Uh, and then in the Green Berets. That's a really interesting moment because what he ends up doing is he takes the heroism of of the the cowboy hero and the World War II hero, the Good War, and he combines those and he plays that out on the battlefields in Vietnam. And that's the only film made, um, major feature film made during the Vietnam War that portrays the war in, in these heroic terms. And it becomes the preferred vision of the war for many Americans, particularly for conservative Americans who want that heroism and want to see right the, um, the war itself, which is anything but heroic in so many ways. It's it's deeply problematic on a number of different levels, um, but they want they want to hold on to that heroism, and, and that's why I I kind of draw this um, draw this through um, uh, the book itself. But um, you know other figures too. Um, all sorts of cowboy heroes. Teddy Roosevelt pops up with great frequency. Um, so these are real and Hollywood heroes. Um, General MacArthur, another one. Sometimes um, Confederate heroes, uh, and uh, are celebrated as well. And so it's um, in this kind of constellation of of um, evangelical heroes. It's uh, they're unfailingly um, um, kind of rugged um, fighters. Warriors and um, uh, usually white men, and very often white men who are um, are kind of asserting um, their heroism by um, wielding violence against non-white populations. Those are patterns that I saw develop, um, and that I try to bring out in this book too. Bruce Willis, <laughs> Die Hard. Yeah, I just have to pause to say, as you th- speak about Theodore Roosevelt, I have. I have a geeky preoccupation with that period of history and I grew up devoting myself to the study of Woodrow Wilson, who today is a controversial figure in a way Mm -hmm. he was not actually just even 10, 15 years ago because of his very pronounced blind spots about race as a child of the South and his age and so on. And so I'm not here to to put Wilson on a pedestal, Mm -hmm. but he was the antithesis of Roosevelt, who they, they had a very very tortuous mm-hmm. relationship. And Roosevelt was trying to push Wilson, as Wilson was the president, into the First World War, and he was resisting that. Mm-hmm. And Wilson uh, made a speech that had a line that still stands out. And he was really responding to Roosevelt's uh, saber-rattling. Mm-hmm. And he said, there comes a time when a man is too proud to fight. 
which I think captures a little bit of your tension here. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and those were two different approaches to the world stage. Ultimately, Wilson, of course, uh, leads the country into war, but after a lot more provocation than Roosevelt was ready to to ride, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. So, so how do we define courage, right? That right. that's kind of at the heart of this. So, what does courage look like? Is it that you're you're not afraid to go out and slay your enemies? You're not afraid to draw first, or does courage look like turning the other cheek? Does courage look like self restraint, right? Holding yourself back, patience, and um, does courage look like willing to sacrifice, willing to be ridiculed, right? But still standing for what is is true, standing, you know, showing a different kind of strength. So it comes down to you know, how are we defining strength? So we we agree strength is good, courage is good. But what does that actually look like? And that's where looking to our heroes can help us reveal, you know, what what has shaped our vision of 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 strength and courage. I have to say, uh, as I'm listening and digesting it all, that tell me what is problematic about someone who would go to defend his home and family uh, yeah. because he's male and he, there's a threat. I mean, how, how do you answer the question for mm-hmm. someone who says, well, wait a minute, that was my dad or that was me or mm-hmm. I, I was motivated by the most noble calling. You know, in Washington State, I keep referring to my home place, but which formed me uh, at the state capitol grounds. Uh, which is a beautiful campus. Let me just say, uh, overlooking Puget Sound with Mount Rainier in the backdrop, you have a statue on a pedestal. And it is a a monument to those who have been veterans, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. honored. And actually in the base of it are carved the words of Jesus. No greater love is there than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That that is the frame of these veterans who've gone off to fight for their country. What do you say to people who say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, time out? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. There's nothing wrong with that. It is noble. It is good, right? It um, And it is self-sacrificial. And um, where the problems start to come in is when uh, we consider that and essentialize that as the duty of men in particular, and then start adding layers to that. And so therefore, I'll... I'll share some of the layers that get added. Men are made to be aggressive. God designed men. God filled men with testosterone so that they can be aggressive and their job is to channel that violence accordingly. And what always comes along with this is the this set of opposites then. We are giving this role to men and then we need an opposite role for women. Complementary role. We could use that. Word. Uh, so, what women are, what men are not. Men are what women are not. So, men are to be strong. Men are to be courageous. Men are to be aggressive. So, the opposite women are weak. Women are submissive. Women are very feminine, another culturally constructed word. Like, lots can be put into that category, um, that description in different times and places. And um, and then we start looking at, um, you, you might think, okay, what's what's so bad with that? Society, maybe that's how society should work. But as Christians, we can start looking at things like, well, what does the Bible say? And what does the Bible say about not men versus women, but what does the Bible call all believers to do and to be? And then we can look at something like the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Now, which bucket do those virtues get placed in? Well, pretty obvious. Those are those are womanly virtues, right? At least within this framework. Um, and so 
that's where things start to go really bad. Uh, when the virtues that we are all called to be as Christians get divvied up. And so the strength, the courage, um, and aggression, not usually a virtue, but in, in this worldview in the it context, is. Yeah. yeah. Those are for men. And all of these other things, those are for women. And, and that's where things get really out of kilter. And, and, and then the women who are wielding these, you know, feminine virtues, which are just the fruit of the spirit, uh, to be in Christ is to exhibit these things. And they are called to submit and to defer to the men who are wielding these traits, right? untampered with by these um, uh, these traditional Christian virtues, really. And that's that's part of the thesis here, and that's part of the significance of John Wayne, right? That, that uh, Christian men are looking outside of Christianity to find their heroes. There's not a coincidence there. It's because men who have been deeply formed by biblical teachings, by the, the model of the New Testament Christ— um, who have been who have been shaped by the Beatitudes, who have been shaped by, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies. Those aren't the men who are necessarily the the heroic warriors that we can hold up, right, as as models of this warrior masculinity. And that's why they find them outside of of uh, Christian tradition. That's where they can find, you know, the the man and and particularly the image of of John Wayne on screen. And that's where they have to turn to. Uh, because men who have been deeply shaped by Christianity look different. It's a different model of courage, a different model of strength, a different conception of power if you're modeling yourself after Jesus in the gospels. And you know, we have one Jesus. We don't have a female version and a masculine version. And we are all, as followers of Christ, called to follow that Christ. And um, I think there's been a real overemphasis in conservative evangelical circles for a long time now to really focus on the difference instead of focusing on um, what it means to follow Christ as men and women and in community. Do you think... Uh... One of the monikers of Jesus is the son of David mm -hmm. and the persona of David, which is a much more Bruce Willis, uh, even though he, he clearly has his tender moments and he has mm -hmm. his confessional moments and his admission and acknowledgement of his own weakness. Still, this is a, a warrior king who, according to the scripture, is not fit to build the house of God, mm -hmm. given his mm -hmm. uh, turbulent past. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that there is in conservative evangelical thought actually a bigger draw for men to David than to Jesus. And I'm only saying this because I've been a pastor for 40 years, and so much of the literature, so much of the Christian publishing uh, for men, men's groups, men's studies, actually is keyed up on David. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, in some ways, it's Jesus is a hard model to follow, right? Jesus, <laughs> David's tough. just a little bit more relatable. I love David because... Right, you know, very flawed, very flawed. And so yeah. so there's space for... But then, you know, you can look at, like, as you say, which attributes of David are they are they looking to? It's not the gentle heart playing as much as the, you know, the, 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 the warrior king version. Uh, but really, if you look at almost any biblical characters, right, they are, they're complicated. It's hard to draw simple lessons about "quote unquote" biblical manhood from the Bible, right? Yes. It's it's very hard. We have a lot of conflicting models here, and a lot of not very good models, uh, which is why I think we 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 really do need to keep 
theologically, the focus on Jesus Christ as the kind of standard against which we can assess not only contemporary models and secular models, but also biblical models of the men who appear in the scriptures. And how they're informed by Christ. I guess I'm thinking about the Apostle Paul, actually. Uh, A lot of our theology has been Pauline, Mm -hmm. and I often try and remind my audiences, start with Jesus and crowd Paul into Jesus. But we often start with Paul and try and fit Jesus in. Especially on gender, yes. (laughs) Yes, and especially on gender. Well, and and even Paul's uh, MO is very assertive sometimes Mm -hmm. in ways that are startling. And so when he says in Galatians, you know, I just wish these people don't agree with me would castrate themselves. I mean, that's, I mean, for a lot of guys, it's like, yeah. And, and yet, whoa. That's, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And that's not to say I, I don't revere Paul because he clearly, his word is anointed by the same spirit. But to yes. the point, our concepts of Jesus need to start with Jesus mm-hmm. as opposed to these other characters in scripture and even extra biblically, which brings me to, let's just settle this part of the conversation, I use the word complementary. Yes. Because complementarianism is a way of describing a particular ethos of church Mm -hmm. life. Men are at the head, the headship of of maleness. Mm -hmm. Women complement that, and that defines roles. And and while people would be... uh, quick to say, no matter where they are in the continuum of this thought, you know, in Christ, we're all one. We're all loved by God the same. We're each, uh, you know, Jesus died for all of us the same. His blood shed on the cross, this whole atonement theology, all of it applies equally to men and women. Uh, But then, but wait a minute, isn't it obvious that men and women were created by God quite differently and with different roles? I stood by while my wife delivered four children. That's not my trip. Uh, and I, I always uh, refer to that as saying, man, I, I'm thinking, dear God, thank you for making me male. I don't want to go through that. Uh, my wife has more strength and character than I could muster in my mm-hmm. thumb. I'm just saying th- this idea, that what I'll call reasonable logic mm-hmm. at, a, at a glance. Mm-hmm. You know, women are created to have different roles and men are created with this testosterone uh, boost and all of that is justified in that lens of creation. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there are people, and I come from this tradition theologically, where uh, what I call gender equity uh, or equality in ministry is is affirmed. And mm-hmm. uh, as, as seeing women as completely able, co-equal, and anointed of God to, to hold any office in the church, to, to achieve any position of leadership that a man could hold. So that comes out of my tradition. We call that egalitarian. What's your take on that? How do you respond to people who say, but come on, men and women are different. Isn't that a, an appropriate way to define society? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot there. Um, so, you know, here, here too, you talk about roles. That's, that's a, actually a word that it has become really popular just in the 20th century to define men and women, to have these separate roles. As a gender word. Yes. Yes. And um, so, yes, women have babies. I gave birth to three myself, and I the thought did cross my mind at a certain point, probably between pregnancy two and three. You know, if I could give this one over to my <laughs> husband and just be the one who watches and says mm-hmm. supportive words, mm-hmm. I would totally do that. Um, so there, yes, there there are differences. But again, if we look to the scriptures, if we're looking for, let's say, biblical womanhood, what does it mean to be a biblical woman? There you have, you know, you have a lot of women, and they are living that out in so many different ways. You know, let's look at Ruth, let's look at Martha, let's look at Mary, let's look at Hulda, at Anna, at right. There are so so what is the is there a 
gendered role there? Or is it, uh, this is the body that God gave you. This is how God created you. And now you respond to God's call in your life. And that might look incredibly different from one woman to another, from mm-hmm. one man to another, mm-hmm. right? And so um, so there are ways of, of both accepting created difference and variation and not then using that to put very um, uh, clear boxes around what is deemed acceptable and what is deemed out of bounds to to live out your call and, and to respond to the prompting of the Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be a place where I would start. Um, uh, so complementarianism, too is a, a rather recent concept. Now, notions of male authority over women historically and within the Christian church, there is a longer history um, to that, certainly. But um, complementarianism, as it's taken shape, particularly from the 1980s to the present, um, again, adds these layers to um, kind of core teachings of male spiritual headship and then ends up really leaning into these roles. Again, so the masculine role is to be provider and protector. I don't know. In the Bible, you see a lot of women who are providing and, in some cases, protecting, right? There's this this tendency to say opposites. David received some provision from women's hands, didn't he? In in very vulnerable moments. And Elijah, you could go, right? And so so all of these layers start getting added to kind of extra-biblical teachings that restrict what women um, are allowed to do, are allowed to be, um, and um, on a wide range, not just in terms of professions, um, but also so a woman needs to be um, at home with children. Uh, and and even here, this so not working outside of the home. And in some circles, there's a that's part of complementarianism. And that's part of this, um, at least in the ideal form. Um, but even that is um, historically problematic because it's only in in kind of post-industrialized uh, history that, that that even makes sense to that work is not considered to be happening in the home, right? And that work is defined in different ways. And so um, there's a blindness to the way that we are adapting to kind of modern uh, economic arrangements and that we need to then rethink what it means to live faithfully in this particular moment as women, as men, as Christians. And I think that there's a lot more flexibility there than what complementarians uh, would, um, or certainly than what they have um, suggested. And it's not just in terms of labor, or the labor market, it's in terms of you know, military, very important, who is supposed to fight for us, who is not supposed to fight for us, even though there are many tactical positions in the military, it doesn't, very little in the military these days compared to historically comes down to brute strength anymore, right? right? right. There's a lot more uh, to defending one's nation. Um, it, it comes down to sexuality, sexual roles uh, in terms of uh, intimate relationships between husbands and wives, notions of sexual purity, of modesty. All of this really gets packaged into uh, language of roles, of what is the appropriate role for men and for women. And again, these are seen as complementary or in many ways as opposites. And, and then packaged and sold as Christian, as this is God's word. 
The problem is um, it's, it's not, or at least let's bring the theologians around the table and really have some, some conversations here. But it also doesn't really fit with how many people have been created, right? There are so many men who find themselves constrained, unable to live up to these kind of macho ideals of what is a real Christian leader, a masculine Christian leader. What does that look like? Uh, many men are, find them that they aren't made for that. Uh, many women find that they aren't made for a subservient uh, role as homemaker, as, um, uh, you know, kind of the submissive identity. There are some women for whom they're very comfortable in those spaces, but many for whom they're not. So then it comes down to many people as a question of, I can't be this. Maybe that means I can't be a Christian. This isn't the right fit for me. And they end up walking away entirely rather than understanding that maybe there are many ways to be a Christian, many ways to be a faithful Christian as women, as men. And I think that's the real harm in complementarianism, that it ends up by adding so much to, quote unquote, gospel Christianity that doesn't really belong there. It ends up um, distorting gospel Christianity and, um, and really driving people away. And you're describing a scenario which you consider to be congruent with the Scripture, not oppositional to it. Absolutely. That, that the Scripture is interpreted uh, in the present day, and I, I, I noted uh, especially that the industrial age changed life so much, and, and we adapt our exegesis to the reality on the ground, and some things have been formed that were not historic to Christianity, and we live with them today as if they were from the beginning. Yeah, and as a historian too, I'm also familiar with the fact that there's a long history of varying interpretations of key biblical passages on women, on men, on gender, on sure, power, sure, right? Sure. And I mean, you talked about your own denomination, um, egalitarian, affirms women in religious leadership. And uh, I mean, my first book is actually on the history of Christian feminism. And I grew up in a, in a conservative community, and I was shocked to learn as a historian first that there is a long history to Orthodox Christians affirming women's religious leadership. And there, there are different ways of interpreting and translating some of these key biblical passages. So my role as a historian isn't actually to weigh in on this one's the right one and this one's the wrong one. I mean, I have some opinions, but for me as a historian, knowing that there's a long history of varied interpretations, what I want to ask is why in this moment, whatever moment I'm looking at, and these people, why are they going with this one and not this one and not this one? And what is it doing for them? And how is that then reflecting their own culture, reflecting their own historical moment? And then how is it in term shaping their culture, their identities, and their theologies? Which brings us at last to all of this uh, thoughtful review of history. How does that inform the public square today in the United States, which is really in your book, this is where you're you're driving uh, the train of thought, that evangelicals, white evangelicals, differentiated from uh, an evangelical community that might be very strong in people of color, for instance, have their own unique uh, kind of framing of this whole lens and, and how that informs the way in which we engage in the public and in our communities and in our views of society and everything mm -hmm. else. Uh, trace the steps. You, you're arguing in your book that American white evangelical uh, culture has gotten off point, has become detoured because of some of these 
preferences and uh, maybe maybe not even by design it's just an incremental slide mm-hmm. into today help us understand where you're going with that how where does that start and how how do we get here I'd say both by design and then okay. incremental. It depends who you're right. looking at, right? Yes, you've yes. got some, you've got some intentionality on the part of certain leaders, and then a, a part of the broader community, it, it is more incremental, and and it, it happens over time, over generations, even. Uh, so what we see is uh, in conservative evangelicalism in the post World War II era, already starting in the World War II era, really is is this this combination again of linking Christian nationalism, defense of Christian America, with what they would you know, referred to perhaps as gender traditionalism or this this stark gender difference. Uh, and this is less explicitly but powerfully implicitly also intertwined in many cases, particularly in the American South with white patriarchy. Um, and and so we see this combination of issues um, that evan- that really kind of move to the center of of evangelicals' understanding of how they ought to engage in in the public realm. Um, so staunchly anti-communist, um, kind of pro-traditional family values as, as they come to define them over time, which is an interesting process. And then in some cases also anti-civil uh, rights. Um, but in the 1940s and the 1950s, these views were not that distinctive, right? They were, this was the post-war era, um, early Cold War, where we call it the Cold War consensus. Lots of Americans were anti-communist sure. for understandable reasons. And uh, this was also post-war baby boom, leave it to beaver era, right? And um, and and kind of pre-active civil rights or early years of the civil rights movement. And so in holding these values, evangelicals were not not that distinct, certainly not oppositional over against the rest of Americans. Roman Catholics would have been in the same place, for instance. Absolutely, absolutely. What changes is the 1960s change all of this, right? That's when we have the civil rights movement challenging uh, uh, white authority, white privilege, uh, white superiority. And we have the feminist movement challenging this gender traditionalism, and we have the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement really questioning American goodness and greatness. And this is the moment when evangelicals really double down on these values, whereas other Americans, many other Americans, not all, but many end up questioning these values. And and that's when evangelicals um, really come to see themselves as the faithful remnant, right? And again, that they have this special role because in in God's nation to maintain faithfulness. And that looks like Christian faithfulness, and it looks like maintaining American strength to defend Christian America. And that's this important moment. So what that ends up looking like then in terms of policy issues, we can kind of trace an embrace of law and order politics, and race is, is very much a part of that. We also see this um, this kind of growing militancy, this, this idea, again, this oppositional identity of us versus them, not only America versus the rest of the world, particularly. In, in that time, uh, the, the communist threat, but against Americans who are not with us, right? Against against liberals, against secular humanists. Love it or leave it. That's the world I 
was a young adult in. Exactly. So so this oppositional identity that really does define, um, it it cuts through the nation, right? The fractured nation part of the subtitle. If you're not with us, you are against us. And you can just see this, um, these teachings propagated uh, in churches, uh, in Christian publishing, through Christian radio, this very us versus them mentality. And because the stakes are so high, um, it it can justify all sorts of uh, tactics in this battle. The ends will justify the means. And that's how we get to a broader set of issues that we can see today in all kinds of survey data that white evangelicals are much more likely than other Americans to um, support war, preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture, uh, to be anti-immigrant, to support a border wall, um, you know, pro-gun um, rights. And you can kind of just look on nearly any social and political issue. You can find white evangelicals as the outlier, right? And so we have this whole constellation of issues. And we can talk abortion as well. It's part of this. And um, um, ideas of religious freedom and what that looks like, um, who who benefits from that, who doesn't so much, ideas of race, racial privilege, ideas of who is really being persecuted in this country. White evangelicals will suggest that they are more persecuted, for example, than Muslims. Um, you know, views on Black Lives Matter. There's this whole constellation of issues that comes together as part of this coherent identity. But at the core of that are notions of, um, of power, of needing power, of asserting power in defense of Christianity, in defense of Christian America. And um, and really at the at the core of this also is a sense of fear. And that's one of the things that um that surprised me as I did this research. I kind of went into this project, I think, understanding that evangelical militancy, when it surfaces, is a kind of natural response to fear. Right? Fear of communism, fear of secular humanism, fear of radical Islam. And so they they are pushed to the point of what else can we do but kind of lash out. And again, the ends will justify the means here. What I came to see after a closer examination of this history is time and again, religious leaders, conservative evangelical leaders actively stoked that fear. Right? They actively stoked fear. Mark Driscoll's church is a prime example. Jerry Falwell Sr.'s church. Even the case that I tell of these fraudulent ex-Muslim terrorists that were all the rage on the evangelical speaking circuit post 9-11, that um, conservative evangelical leaders were trying to stoke fear in the hearts of believers, in the hearts of their followers, in order, ultimately, I concluded, to consolidate their own power. And that we needed to flip that script, that evangelical militancy wasn't necessarily always the response to fear, even though these fears were genuine, evangelical militancy often came first and then required the continual stoking of fear in the hearts of followers in order to justify that and sustain that militancy. And so I think that was one of the key moments in my research when that clicked and I came to kind of understand evangelical political engagement in that light. Um, And I think that's something perhaps uh, in terms of rethinking where evangelical are and how evangelicals engage in politics, that would be a place I would start. Do you think it's possible that these evangelical leaders actually believed, though? I mean, 
just on its face, it sounds to me like you would say, well, they actually are plotting or they had some kind of grand design mm -hmm. and they were disingenuous in the way in which they brought forward their ideas. Is it possible that they actually believed them to be true, even yes. if they are not grounded? I mean, yes, I think I think there's a lot of genuine belief here. Um, and then there is also a lot of self-delusion, I think, for all of us. Right? You know, the, the, <laughs> right. the ideas that we believe to be true, uh, we will hold facts to. And we uh, it's very easy for any of us to justify uh, the pursuit of power in order to do what we think is good and right and true. And I think it's very hard for us to be self-critical and to um, to interrogate our own understanding of uh, of uh, to interrogate what we're doing, right? Our, what we're doing in God's name, in particular. And uh, and so I think that uh, one does not negate the other. Genuine belief that what you're doing is right doesn't um, uh, is fully well, compatible with the right, abuse right. of power in order to achieve what you think is right. And because you think you're you're protecting something worth saving, exactly. and it's under threat. Absolutely. And and the whole idea that uh, we're under threat. I mean, actually, is a motivator here. I mm -hmm. mean, that's a key yes. piece of your analysis yes. is that many evangelical American Christians, especially who are white, imagine, uh, I don't use that as a pejorative, but they, they believe that they are under threat, yes. that my way of life, our way of life, which actually is a righteous way of life, is now going to pass away if we do not engage and maybe embrace characters that don't necessarily reflect our values as a way of of protecting us. Exactly. And and in that, there's a certain sense of assumption of responsibility that the future, yeah. the church, the gospel, Jesus' reputation mm -hmm. rests on me. Exactly. What would you say to that? Yeah, yeah that, that's exactly how this works. And uh, so here I'm speaking less as a historian, more as a Christian myself. So kind of bringing okay. in my, my faith understanding here of uh, that's, that's not really what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to faithfulness. Um, so in the book, I um, uh, in the last chapter, the last chapter is, uh, was actually a really difficult chapter to write, to edit, all to read. Now it's it's um, kind of the culmination of how some of these teachings of gender and sex and power have culminated in really horrific abuses within evangelical communities. And it's in that context that I quote Rachel Den Hollander, uh, this amazing kind of activist, the first witness in the, the Larry Nassar case um, in terms of uh, sexual abuse of this is the gymnasts, gymnastics. Yeah. The gymnastics, yes. And then she she's a conservative evangelical herself. And in the context of addressing abuse uh, in the Larry Nassar case, she also turned her attention on evangelical communities and said, you know, evangelicals, we have a problem too. And so she's becoming, uh, she's become a leading advocate to address abuse nationally and also in evangelicalism. Um, but she has a quote that um, in that chapter that I think is actually um, um, true beyond that particular set of circumstances. And she says, uh, God does not need your protection, right? Jesus Christ does not need your protection. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not need your protection. Jesus just asks for your obedience. And what does obedience look like? It looks like telling the truth and doing justice. And, and that, to me, is, is what I hold on to. And I think that's what American Christians ought to be holding on to. Jesus doesn't call us to win, 
the battles, right? So Jesus doesn't call us to fight the battles even. Jesus calls us to radical faithfulness. And that's a countercultural call in many ways, right? Uh, the Messiah didn't look like what people expected the Messiah to look like. He comes riding in on a donkey, totally messes with all their expectations. And to me, as I look at Jesus of the Gospels, it's a model of this radical divestment of power, of giving up power, of sacrificing. And we are called to take up our crosses and follow that Christ. So what does that look like in the public sphere? Right? What does that look like? What, um, you know, how much of our energy ought to be invested in protecting our spaces? Um, to do what? To what end ultimately? There is so much that has been done in the name of protecting the witness of the church that is really quite awful, that destroys the witness of the church, right? This is the language that I came across over and over again in cases of abuse, where abusers— and you're talking about sexual abuse. Sexual abuse and more broadly abuses of power. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, both, okay. and they're often okay. very tightly related, but not always. And in, in that okay. last chapter, I talk about both. Um, okay. You know, so somebody in in case of Mark Driscoll, it's it's uh, abuse of power. So power. Yeah. Yep. And then in in many cases, it can be both. Um, so sexual abuse and abuse of power. And and what was deeply disturbing um, in my research was not just the um, horrific acts of perpetrators, right? Everybody agrees this, this is horrible stuff that we're looking at. But what was in, in some ways even more disturbing to me was uh, the response of communities, of Christian communities, of families even, of elders of churches, of entire congregations, members of organizations who repeatedly followed this pattern of covering up the abuse, of defending the abuser, of blaming the victims, of um, of 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 really uh, ostracizing uh, victims, survivors, and and that's what I had to look at. And so often, this language of protecting the mission of the church was used there, when in fact that utterly destroys the mission of the church. And again, to go back to what does God require of us? Right? To tell the truth and to do justice. And that from from out of that is where where any any witness of the church is going to come from, and um, and if we if we instead put our our brand forward, if we're trying to present you know best face forward, that's really what got us to where we are now, which which is in many cases a, a really bad place, and, and we really need to I think be a lot braver in speaking truth to each other. And so in the political sphere. This has implications too, because we all understand that the uh, the data suggests that uh, white evangelicals are 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 largely aligned with a particular uh, stream of political life in the Republican Party, yes. uh, often uh, aligned with Donald Trump as a persona just right now yes. and in the last few years. Do you see all of that intersecting? That's the natural outcome. Are you analyzing the often asked question? How do these people who themselves profess to be so um, uh, Jesus followers and aligned to certain personal conduct and probability, how do they find a hero in someone like Donald Trump who, whose own personal journey does not seem to reflect those same values? Yeah, I find a lot of consistency here. So in 2016, when, when the nation was watching white evangelical support for Donald Trump grow and, and then persist, 
Uh, there's a lot of talk of betrayal, right? How could white evangelicals betray their values to vote for a man like Trump, right? These are family values evangelicals. This is the moral majority. How could they? Are they just a bunch of hypocrites? And to me, knowing this longer history, knowing this, this history of um, militant masculinity, of holding up these rugged heroes who, who might be really crass, who might use violence, but it was necessary, who would do what needed to be done. They weren't going to let political correctness stand in their way. They weren't going to let these you know, softer virtues get in the way of, of really doing what needed to be done. When I heard evangelicals talk about Trump as their ultimate fighting champion— that's when I thought back to there's a long history of this, right? We can we can look at in the the image of John Wayne. We can see it in uh, you know, their elevation of somebody like Ollie North. Uh, historically, we can see it in uh, you know, their embrace of of William Wallace in the movie Braveheart as kind of a a key. Uh, uh, text, almost a liturgy in, um, in, in their, their spiritual formation. And so when you get to somebody like Donald Trump, it really made perfect sense, uh, particularly in this, this, um, uh, this militant framework of us versus them, of we are the faithful remnant and, and the, the secular powers, the liberals, uh, the Democrats, again, kind of fill in the blank, are going to get us. And we've already decided that a preemptive attack a preemptive offense is the best defense here, right? There's this long, long history of, of this thinking that's been uh, inculcated now in generations of evangelicals through popular culture, through sermons, through, through popular literature, through Christian radio. And so when you get up to 2016, there's a lot of consistency here. Uh, and for anybody who says this is a betrayal of evangelical values— I would suggest that you haven't fully comprehended what these values are, even something like family values. What does that really entail? What sorts of visions of uh, sexuality and power and masculinity are entailed in, in family values evangelicalism? How does race and white supremacy play into some of these family values historically? How, how do ideals like uh, you know, law and order politics or commitments to law and power uh, in order politics, end up consistently framing evangelical political engagement, and how does race and power play into that? Right, all of that we really see coming together and surfacing in evangelical support for Donald Trump. And I, I think we we really saw that over the last four years that if evangelicals truly were acting against their values, if they truly were holding their nose to vote for a candidate like Donald Trump, I don't think we would have seen that consistent support court and uh, resilient defense of the of Trump and his policies for the next four years, which is really what we've seen. And so, um, yes, I, the book um, really uses this history to suggest that we really need to engage uh, evangelical support for Trump um, for what it is, uh, really close affinities in terms of values um, and in terms of a, a posture towards um, other Americans and towards the rest of the world. I'm hearing you say that uh, evangelical support for Donald Trump is the natural consequence of a long multi-generational journey yes. in the evangelical psyche exactly. in this country. But then what would you say to someone who, who would say, you know what, I, I, there are things about Donald Trump and his policies that I, I, I applaud. Mm -hmm. uh, I, there are things about a Joe Biden or 
before that, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, that are <laughs> appalling to me, uh, you know, and, and I wish I could choose between candidates mm-hmm. that were both uh, A and B plus candidates, but no, I've got this yeah. this uh, unfortunate option of mm-hmm. uh, somebody who's a D minus and an F. Well, I mean, I actually hear people reflect yeah. in that way. And so therefore, what can I do? How, do I just withdraw from the from the whole process or do I yeah. make a dread choice? Well, you know, politics is about so much more than just casting a vote, right? And so, so the vote is, I mean, hugely significant every four years, every two years, if you will. Uh, but uh, politics and political engagement is about so much more than what comes down to that choice. And uh, if you look back at the primary season to, um, you know, for any individual, that might be absolutely true for that individual. For when we look at evangelicals writ large, uh, that's where we can see that evangelical support for Donald Trump was critical to him securing the nomination, right? And so, so we need to contend with that. There were a lot of other options. Options. And it was evangelical support that brought us Donald Trump as one of our two options. Then we can also look to, again, the affinities. The affinities of not just in terms of supporting this kind of crass, uh, renegade, uh, kind of blowing everything up. um, Disruptor. Yes. (laughs) Um, The ultimate fighting champion, right? But also many affinities in terms of policies. Right. It's it's not just, you know, we like a couple of things with Trump. The alignment is pretty tight. And if you look at something like Wayne Grudem's book on politics uh, that he wrote during the Obama administration, and you look at his his presentation of Christian political values on immigration, on border control, on guns, across the board, all line up very tightly with somebody like Donald Trump. So, you know, we just, we need to acknowledge that. And we have all kinds of survey data that bears this out on all sorts of different fronts. Um, and, And so, you know, this denial of, well, I, you know, or I hear a lot of, if you just tweet a little, I used to hear that before he was banned from Twitter, a little less, right? Then, then, um, then, you know, full support here. Uh, I think in terms of evangelical political engagement, I mean, there are so many issues that are really fraught um, and and politics is messy. I think it would be really healthy for evangelicals, certainly healthy for this country, if um, it was the norm and not the exception to um, push against the party that you most closely identify with, right? That you do not accept an entire party platform. And that, you know, it would be, talk about a a witness. It'd be a pretty incredible witness if evangelicals with their pretty massive political mobilization were known as being up for grabs every single election, right? If they were known to, imagine the power that they could have to push back against the Republican Party um, on any number of issues. I don't know. Let's talk poverty. Let's talk refugee resettlement. Let's talk immigration reform or, or you know, whatever that might look like. And for, for evangelicals, the minority who find themselves in the Democratic Party to be doing the same, right? Um, to be up for play, mostly to, um, to understand that the Christian faith may not, probably will not align neatly with any one political faction. 
and if evangelicals were known for being the voice of conscience wherever they find themselves and for being the troublemakers within the parties, really. Um, you know, I think that would be a much healthier place, certainly spiritually, uh, for evangelicals. It would allow for a lot more, I think, political diversity. It would allow for a lot more um, necessary conversations, and it would certainly be healthier for American democracy. Well, and, and the history on Donald Trump as, as a character we've just now been discussing uh, has not fully been written yet, and we, we're in that zone where he's still being evaluated, and I'm sure many people listening to us today would would see them see him as still a, a heroic figure mm-hmm. who is defending important ideas and truths and may even see him as a, as a follower of Jesus from what they know and what they've heard and read and so on. I, this, this conversation uh, exposes the reality that our own sense of, of understanding of the world around us, of our country, of ourselves, mm-hmm. of our gender, of our own church and faith is hugely informed by many things we've never stopped to think about. Exactly. And I read your book as a kind of a call to get back to Jesus. That sounds so, almost like a Sunday school answer, but you know, wherever you land on these issues, whether you be for Mr. Trump or against him, whether you're a champion of Joe Biden or not, or you're in the middle and wish you didn't have to vote, or where, wherever you are, all of us who would say, you know, Jesus is Lord, should be very careful to study him. Mm-hmm. What's his MO? What's his passion? I, I sometimes use this, I, I actually put, to remind myself of this in ordinary life, I will put my fingers here to take my pulse to remind me that I need to find the pulse of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that my pulse needs to rise and fall with his own. The things that make him most concerned and his heart beats faster for it. That's what should make my heart beat fast. And I, I discover often that my heart, my blood pressure is up over things that legitimately, and I have to say, he probably doesn't care about that. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I think a lot of readers of this book have actually found that to be the case, that this, this brings them, it doesn't drive them away from their faith. It makes them reinvest in that faith and, and, and take another look, open the scriptures, and take another look at Jesus. You know, who is Jesus? And so I think we need to look at Jesus. Then I would add historical bias here, uh, that we need to read history, right? That history really facilitates that because history helps us to see that so much of what has been packaged and sold as biblical, as plain old Christian, right, is in fact deeply shaped by our cultural and historical moments. And, um, and, and that doesn't tell us if it's right or wrong, right? That ultimately we have to, we have to, we need to bring in the theologians, we need to bring in the pastors, we need to talk with Christians and non-Christians, people who are very different from us. Right? We need to have a lot of conversations. But if we understand that, you know, the values that we might be holding to in any given moment have in fact changed over time, that they are not eternal and timeless, that things that we say are, you know, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, things that we take for granted in terms of, you know, Christian nation, Christian America, if we can see that actually things used to look quite different, actually conservative Protestants 
evangelicals used to have very different ideals of masculinity. There was a time when many conservative Protestants were not Christian nationalists. There were a time when conservative Protestants were known for their pacifism, in fact. right? As soon as we know that history, that frees us up to be very curious about the present, which ultimately, I think, should drive us back to the Scriptures and enable us to have much more productive conversations around those Scriptures together when we understand that each one of us has been shaped by our cultural context. Again, it doesn't give us the answers, but it really helps us to ask better questions. In my own role, uh, uh, my day job off the podcast, uh, I I love history, and I've done some history in my own fellowship of believers, and and can say unequivocally, you know, there there are a lot of things that used to form my faith family that are have been discarded as we now look back on them as as Relics of a moment, for instance. We were always about women having equal access to leadership and power in the church, but they better not wear pants. <laughs> women were forbidden from wearing pants. I mean, it's a fashion thing in a way, but it was at the time, I'm talking about the early 20th century, mm-hmm. it was it was a reaction mm-hmm. actually to the, the, the 1920s. And uh, we were opposed to mixed bathing, which always amused me because I, I think what, by that they meant swimming. <laughs> but in any case, I mean, there's just so many things that mm-hmm. in the moment or mm-hmm. in a generation uh, seem so ironclad. Mm-hmm. But when you step out of it, you realize, well, that's actually an add-on. Isn't that what Jesus really did when he came into this world? Uh, into a culture and to a community that saw themselves as very tightly aligned with God, but he kept saying, you know, you've got some add-ons here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the way you've read this book that you have, the Old Testament, uh, isn't exactly on point. You need to rethink that. Yeah. And here we are. Exactly. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? That kind of that Jesus disrupts our our values, our our ideals. And, you know, and, and even as generations of Christians strive for faithfulness, right? We, we do so imperfectly. Uh, sometimes more imperfectly than others, uh, right? And so to to be kind of repeatedly drawn back and open to, humble to, um, rethinking our current values, rethinking our current posture, and aligning ourselves once again with what I think is, you know, ultimately a, a kind of radical gospel message, a radical model of Christ. Um, we should be, I think, much um, much more open to. Um, to being disrupted, to having our ideals dis- disrupted um, in in light of the teachings of, of Christ. I just have to say, this book is one of the most provocative and thought-provoking reads I've had in a long time. And I do love history, and this book is a book of history. It is your understanding of history. It's based on solid research. We've often in this conversation, you've referred to your research, and, and it's it's not your opinion. Yes. It is grounded in legitimate, credible footnoting. Look uh, at the end notes, that's please. Right, that's right. I mean, there's a lot here, and it's it's the kind of book that when you read it, you just want to talk to someone about it, which is, honestly, isn't that the measure of a great read, that I can't just keep it to myself. I have to process it with someone else. And it there may be things that uh, you read this book and you and you think, whoa, whoa, whoa not no way. <laughs> yes. uh, you and I talked off stage a little bit about Phyllis Schlafly, who's named yeah. in the book, who's an iconic figure in a period. Many people in a younger generation have no idea who she is. If you don't watch Netflix, yes. which has its own, it's not necessarily clean history no. any more than the Crown is, <laughs> but it's still great, <laughs> great entertainment. I'm just saying, there are a lot of people I lived with in this book. 
And I am thinking through your narrative and your your understanding of what they contributed. And then that makes me look at my own journey. Mm-hmm. And that's so healthy, Kristen. Thank you for that. And at the end of this book, you quote from the lyrics of a song written by Bill and Gloria Gaither, who are actually yes. my friends. I had dinner with them last Monday. Uh, oh. <laughs> let me just say, in the it's a, it's a lyric that references, references Jesus and John Wayne. Mm-hmm. And it talks about the, the pathos of the lyric. Yeah. Oh. And you and you've kind of wrapped this up with the in the in the song. There's a kind of heart cry mm-hmm. for the Jesus piece yeah. and the tension that the yeah. presumed man singing the song is is feeling. But I need to be more the John Wayne guy. And there was this tension yeah. in that. What would you say to us today who are wrestling in the middle or trying to figure out: Am I really leaning towards Jesus, or am I being drawn into John Wayne? Yeah. I mean, as I, I say in the conclusion, you know, that tension has has ceased to exist for many people because they have transformed Jesus into a John Wayne figure. They, they dressed him up in John Wayne. Exactly. Exactly. So if there is, if you're feeling attention, that's actually a good thing, right? That's actually a good thing. And, uh, you know, if you have to choose between Jesus and John Wayne, I say go with Jesus. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> you know what we say around here, Jesus' subject. And, and I think that's actually the subject of your book. Thank you so much, Kristen. So proud to have you with us. And uh, we just want to thank you for joining us on our podcast. And hey, subscribe to us. Just check us out at allthattosay.org. Subscribe on YouTube too, or onto your favorite platform. God bless, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.